So we are continuing in our series uh, we've titled, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. We've talked about a few different uh, Israel's kings through these times and all the different situations that they faced and when they didn't know what to do. And, and today, the idea of like, what do you do at mountaintop and valley low? Because we know that life and circumstances and situations, we can go from mountaintop of my gosh, God is doing such amazing stuff, to valley low, to where are you, God? And we're in these moments. And so no matter, I'll just give you the punchline at the end right now. You know, if you got to go early. The end is, like here, the, the thing is, what we do, no matter we are victorious, celebrating, encouraged by what God's doing, or we are in a valley low and scared and terrified, we finish well. We set our sights with the end in mind. So often, you and I know this, that we just kind of, we're good at starting. We're good at starting stuff. We see this amongst other believers. We see this amongst people in the Bible. Great at starting. Finishing well is a bit more of a challenge, right? Finishing well and going there is a bit more of a challenge. And we're going to see from one of these Old Testament kings today, he started so well, faithful for years and years. But at the end, he was to come to pride. Pride. Pride is that is that thing that prevents you and I so often from finishing well. C.S. Lewis says this about pride right here. It says that unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to each, leads to every other device. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. I want to take a picture of that. That's a little deep for 10 o'clock, 10.30 on a Sunday morning to jump right into the totally surrounding mind around that. that but that's, that's, that's C.S. Lewis for us, right? Always bringing these things. Pride is that thing that keeps us from celebrating someone else's victories. Pride is what keeps you from celebrating someone else's achievements. Pride is what keeps you from, from reaching out and asking someone for help. Pride is what causes you to have a hard time admitting when you are wrong. Pride is what causes you to buy things that you have no business buying because you cannot afford them, but you're trying to prove something to the people around you, right? Pride is that thing that is so easy to see in other people, yet so difficult to see in the mirror, right? It's so difficult to see it in ourselves. And today, we're going to look at the story of King Hezekiah. A great king that did many awesome great things. You find his story in 2 Kings uh, chapters 18 through 20. You find it again in 2 Chronicles 30 through 32. Um, so I hope you brought a snack because it's a lot of chapters to cover and we're just going to read it straight through. All right? Um, uh, no, uh, we, we're not going to go exactly verse by verse, but I do want to help us to kind of, I wanted you to flex your imagination today and, and jump into this story and kind of understand where he is, and King Hezekiah, I think, is an example of this guy that has mountaintop high experiences and moments and valley low. He has moments where everything is going well and great, and then other moments where it is terrifying in his life. And we see this going up and down in his life, the mountaintops and the valley lows. Hezekiah becomes the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. The kingdom of Israel is divided. This is coming close to the end of before they go into exile, but it is divided. He is ruling in Jerusalem, and he becomes the king there in his palace in Jerusalem at 25 years old. 
want you to imagine with me that first day that he is anointed and becomes the king of Israel. Would you envision him walking out on his palace there, walking out to the royal balcony, putting his hands on, on the balcony there and looking out over the city of Jerusalem and Judea. And I imagine him taking a deep breath and letting out a big sigh. And it's not a sigh of like an arrogant 25-year-old that's, oh yeah, look out, Jerusalem. Here comes the king you've always been waiting for. It's not a sigh of, oh yeah, I'm here. I've made it big time. It is a sigh of sorrow. Because he looks out over God's city. He looks over God's nation. And he sees that it is filled with idolatry. That there is idolatry all throughout Jerusalem, all throughout Judea. That they have, the people of God have forsaken the one true God and are worshiping false idols. And he's seeing the, 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 the work that is ahead from the Jew. And he, he takes another deep breath and whew, there's a lot of work to do. And he needs to do the work that his father did not do. And he needs to undo the work that his father did and his grandfather did because they led the nation to worship false idols. They led them further away from the true God. And so he comes in and right away he gets to work. Right away, day one, he gets the work of tearing down the false idols that have been set up across Jerusalem, across Judea, the greater area. And he even... Dis <clears throat> discriminates the idols. Like we're told that he turns them into, and the archaeologists have even found this, that he's turned them into latrines. He's turned them into bathrooms. Public restrooms are now at the place where these idols were once set up. So he has this amazing drive to destroy this stuff. He even has to, to get rid of what is known as the bronze and serpent. If you're familiar with your Bible and in numbers, when the people of Israel were going through the, the wilderness, going from Egypt to the promised land, they got attacked by serpents, and some of them are dying, and God tells Moses to put this serpent on a snake and lift it up, and the people look at it, they will be healed. Now, they've kept this, and it's, it's there in the temple, and now they have to, he has to get rid of it, because instead of them worshiping the God who healed them, they start worshiping and burning incense to the snake, the bronze and snake. Isn't that so like people? We look back, even ourselves, we can look back, and we worship a moment we worship a movement, we worship a manifestation, we worship when God did something instead of the God of the miracle, right? There's something inside of us that wants to worship a moment instead of worshiping the God that gave us that moment. And then he does this amazing thing. God calls him to do this and he brings back celebrating the Passover. The Passover had not been celebrated in Jerusalem since the time of Solomon. This is incredible because God tells the people of Israel that you are to celebrate the Passover every year. The Passover is, if you remember, is that remembrance of when God took the Israelites from, from Egypt as slaves. He says to sacrifice the spotless lamb and put its blood above your doorpost and to remember that he's doing this. And he has a whole entire thing that's to be practiced, that these feasts of the Lord are so important for them to remember because when we don't know what to do, we need to look back and remember what God already did. Because when we don't know what to do, we look back and we get with fear and worry and all this stuff. But when we remember what God did last time, when we remember what God has already been and how he's been faithful, it encourages us and enables us to step into that next unknown thing because you remember. And that's what God says, remember the Passover. Do not forget it. And so he brings this back of celebrating the Passover in 
Jerusalem. And man, you're talking about a celebration. He sends the word out. People come from the surrounding areas to come and celebrate the Passover for the first time in years. And they have the Passover and the the festival of unleavened bread. And all this is going on. They have such a revival. There's such amazing response to them remembering the one true God that they're like, let's not stop. Let's go again. And they go and they're supposed to celebrate it for eight days. They're like, let's do another eight days. Like, let's just keep on going. You know, even though it wasn't actually the dates of the Passover, like, we're doing it anyway. And we're going to keep on celebrating. And, like, you're talking about barbecue of barbecues going on. Sometimes we kind of forget this. It tells us in Second Chronicles 30 that Hezekiah himself offered a thousand bulls. A thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep and goats. And the officials... Of the, royal, of, of, the, of the officials also provided another 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep and goats. That is a barbecue. That is a party. That is people remembering who God is and what he has done. And then the people are so encouraged. They're so filled with the remembrance of who God is and what he has done on their behalf that now not just Hezekiah, but the people on their way home start tearing down the false idols. They start desecrating them on their way home. And it reminds me of like when I was growing up in church and would go to youth camp or go to youth conference. And what happens is like you go to youth camp, you go to youth conference, you come home, you are fired up, you are filled with the spirit, you come home. When I was in the day, they had these things called CDs. Remember before the MP3, before the phone, there was Spotify, young people, there was this round thing that you had to put in a player. And it, it, it would play CDs. And the, the kids, in my, the students in my youth group would come home and they'd smash their secular CDs. Remember? How many of you guys had a CD smashing, tape CD, tape whatever smashing thing, going to break these things off, right? But Hezekiah knows, just like we know, that not just mountaintops, you got to have a consistency. So Hezekiah brings back the temple worship. He gets the Levites back in place, and now there's daily sacrifices happening. There's services happening that remind them, not just on the Passover, not just on the feast, but who God is every day. Because guess what? Just like those friends of mine in youth group that smashed their CDs, guess what? A few months after being back from that spiritual high... They're going back to the store and buying the same CD that they smashed three months ago. How many of you guys did that? Right? We did that. We, we have this tendency inside of us to go back to that thing that we once gave to God. Sin, temptation, desire is always there. So we can't just have the mountaintops. We need to be that consistent through and finishing well so true of like even as us as a as a people i remember you know i was thinking this month we we remember 9-11 right 9-11 when the entire nation came together and was scared and was terrified it happened like the churches like filled up people were coming to church like crazy they were fearful they were worried where are the answers looking to god for answers and then we look around after just not even that long and where did everybody go we got comfortable and we get comfortable and the fear dissipates. And now we all of a sudden think that we can live forever. So six years, Hezekiah rules and reigns, and he's leading the nation of Israel, ridding them of the idol worship. And revival is coming, and, and great things are coming. They're starting to prosper. And I love it that it shows us right here 
I want you to hear this. It doesn't matter who your family is, who you, where your family was, or who you come from. Hezekiah comes from two, a grandfather and a father that were evil, awful kings, and yet he was called by God to do what God called him to do and empowered by the Spirit to do that. It's too many people today are holding on to the baggage of their families, to the to identity of their families in the area of addiction, mental health, economic standings, and God has called you, and you don't have to hold on to that baggage. You are a new creation. And God has empowered you to do that thing. Quit holding on to that stuff and making excuses. Hezekiah does what his grandfather and his father did not do. So here comes six years of ruling and reigning well. He comes back up to that that balcony, looks over Jerusalem, looks over Judea. And it looks a lot different. The idol worship is gone. People are worshiping the one true God. But I would imagine him again looking out and taking a deep breath and letting out another deep sigh. This time it's not a sigh of sorrow, it's a sigh of fear. Because he looks around at the nations around him, and the Assyrian army has been coming around and defeating city after city, nation after nation. He's there on his balcony looking out, wondering what is happening, and then one of his servants comes running in and says, it happened, it's happened, King Hezekiah. Assyria has captured the northern kingdom. They've taken them over, and they've led them off to exile, led them off to different places. could imagine him taking a deep sigh and a deep breath and going, what happens when they come and knock on our door? Knock on our gate. That doesn't happen for another eight years. Hezekiah continues to lead the nation and serving the one true God, and and provisions are coming, and prosperity is coming. But now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, he can feel the grip of the Assyrian army tightening around Judah. Because he looks out and he sees that the king of Assyria and his armies have taken city after city, walled city, fortified cities, cities that have never surrendered, cities that have never fallen, are now fallen to this most powerful king and army on the world at this time. And he knows that they're coming towards Jerusalem. So he doesn't know what to do. You do like probably a lot of us would do in that moment. of What can we do to, to not become the next city that is attacked. And so he seeks peace. And essentially what he does is a way of bow to the king of Assyria and says, we seek your peace. Do not come and attack us. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, says, okay, I'll grant you your peace. I'll give you your peace. But it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you a tribute. And this tribute is going to be a lot It's going to cost you one ton of gold and 11 tons of silver to receive the peace that you so desperately want. So Hezekiah, in desperation, goes throughout the city of Jerusalem, pulling down silver and pulling down gold wherever he can get to pay this tribute to this evil king. He even, to the point, takes down the doors to the temple of the God Most High and the doorposts that are covered in gold, and he gives them to the Assyrian army. But it only brought temporary peace because it was not enough. How many of you know that when you give the enemy an inch... He wants more. When you give tribute to the enemy, when you think you could pay off the enemy and just give a little bit, you think he's satisfied with that? 
No, he wants the whole thing. He's not satisfied with just a little bit. And if you give him a little bit, he's going to say, I'm going to come in and take the whole thing. So here comes King Hezekiah looking out over his kingdom, thinking that by chance he has, he has missed this. He has, he has saved Jerusalem. He has purchased their peace. But then a servant comes running up to him and says, they're here. They're here. The armies of Assyria are in our region. They are here. And they have sent delegates of King Sennacherib to come and meet with you. King Hezekiah doesn't go himself. He sends out two of his delegates, three of his delegates, to go out there and meet with them. So you've got the, the delegates of the king of Sennacherib, Assyria, and the king of Hezekiah of Judah going and meeting and discussing this. And the goal, the intent of these Assyrian delegates is, is to bring, their, their one mission is to bring fear and intimidation. Because they don't even want to have a battle. They want to come off with such fear that Jerusalem just says, here's the keys. Take it. We're just handed over to you. We're not going to fight. They're like, don't even fight. Don't. They come with such fear and intimidation that they come and they, they want to do this. And they start talking about all the other kingdoms that they tore down. And they're, they're, they're talking about this, and they're meeting outside the walls of Jerusalem. And the, the, the delegates from Jerusalem say, hey, don't, don't speak in Hebrew. We know your language. And don't speak so loud as to bring fear to those on the wall listening. Instead, these arrogant, jerk <laughs> Assyrians speak in a louder voice. And in Hebrew, says this, Kings 18, 29, and 30. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. He's speaking loud, bringing fear to those on the wall and telling them how bad it was when other nations were taken over, when other cities had fallen and what their demise was. See, the way that they battled back then was a lot different than how we view battle today is that they would roll up on a city with their armies and all this and they would just simply camp outside the city walls and so then the cities would lock up, close up. No one would go in and no one would go out until they were starving. And so these guys are using fear and intimidation like this. And it even says in 2 Kings, it says, talks about these other cities and says to Jerusalem, you will be like them and you will come to the place that you are eating your own dung and drinking your own urine. Trying to use fear and intimidation and start mocking the God of Israel. Start mocking Yahweh. Saying, what kind of make-believe world do you live in? Do you really trust your king? you really trust your God? And he starts comparing the God of Israel, Yahweh, to the surrounding kingdoms and the ones that they have fallen. Do you really believe that God will defend you? Do you really believe that God can do that? Delegates do as Hezekiah said. They return quietly without saying anything. But as they walk in, they rip their clothes as a sign. And we see in the Old Testament of weeping and mourning. They come and meet Hezekiah with ripped clothes. And they say, the worst day has come. It is here. We don't even know what to do. They, then Hezekiah himself rips his clothes. But then he starts praying. 
starts talking to God and remembering who God is and what he has done. He builds up his spirit by remembering who God is. And he takes the encouragement that he has and he goes into the city square at the gate and he speaks to the people. And he says this in 2 Chronicles 32, 7 through 8. Be strong and courageous. Do not be discouraged because the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. Most powerful army on the face of the earth is outside your gates. And he's telling the people inside the gates, there's a greater power with us. There's a greater power. With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Amen. And the people gained their confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. He goes from there as he's building himself up. He reaches out to the prophet Isaiah. He says, Isaiah, go and beseech God on our behalf. Go and speak to God and tell him to have mercy on us. And he appeals to him. And, and Isaiah comes and meets with the king Hezekiah. And he says, I assure you from the word from the Lord that the king of Assyria will not enter Jerusalem. Not even one shoot, shot of an arrow will enter in. Hezekiah, you're surrounded by the Assyrian army, the most dominating force on the earth, and God says they're not going to enter. Not even a single arrow will be shot. In the natural, it looks impossible. In the natural, it is doom and gloom and ugly. In the natural, there is no way, but yet Hezekiah trusts God. And that night, Hezekiah, the officials, and the army, they just go to sleep. We're just going to trust and go to sleep. And while they sleep, God sends an angel of the Lord into the camp of the Assyrian army and wipes out 185,000 soldiers in one night. Imagine that, 185,000 dead. There's still a few still left living. King Sennacherib being one of them. Could you imagine him waking up in that camp that morning? You know, like waking up thinking they are the most dominant force on the earth. He wakes up and finds 185,000 of his soldiers dead. And he's going, what happened? There wasn't a strife. There wasn't a conflict. There wasn't a battle. There's not even stab wounds in them. How, what, what is going on? Could you imagine the fear that he has? And the Bible tells us that he ran off and scurried off to Nineveh. And there in Nineveh, the other prophecy was fulfilled that he would die in his own town. He goes back to Nineveh, worshiping in the temple of his false god, and his two sons come and assassinate him. God said it, and it happened. And so, right after this, mountaintop, right after this, the Bible says, at this same period, King Hezekiah finds out he's sick. Like, boom, did this, now you're sick. Not like sniffle sick, not even like the flu sick, like get your house in order because you're going to die sick. Because that's what the prophet Isaiah is sent to tell him. You need to get your stuff in order because you're going to die. And just like many of us, he's not ready to hear that news. He's not, feels like he's done. Hezekiah hits his knees and he pleads with God. And I want you to just to kind of start to notice just how this starts to creep in ever so slightly here. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 2 through 3 He's coming to God, and we get a glimpse of what's in his heart. Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully 
and with wholehearted devotion and have, been, have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Hey God, don't you remember who I am? Don't you remember how faithful I have been? Don't you remember the things that I have done for you and for your name? Don't we do that? We do that when we pray to God. Like we go before it, almighty, awesome, all-powerful, holy God, and we try to tell him how good we are. Right? Like we try to tell him how great we are, what we have done. Remember us? God, I remember how, I love how one of the guys said in our men's group, it's not that, it's not that. It's we should be coming going, instead of saying, oh God, look at all this great movement and healings and incredible things and prosperity happened. It's more like, hey God, you did this and I was just close by. I just happened to be in the vicinity where you were working and you were moving, right? That's the right perspective we should have. Because if not, pride comes in. He was doing it. God had his plan all the time. So we see this glimpse of pride starting to rise up, I think, there. But yet God hears it. Because God, man, even in the Old Testament, God is a God of grace. He still believes in us. Come on, man, come on. You got this. Keep going. You got this. And, he, and he's encouraging him. And, and, and he hears the prayer. And he's like, Isaiah just gave the message. He's only in the courtyard, just gave the message from the Lord, only makes it to the courtyard uh, of the temple. And he's like, uh, of, the, of the palace. And God's like, Isaiah. Like, what? Didn't I just get, no, go back. Go back and tell him. You got another 15 years. So he goes and tells Hezekiah, you got another 15 years to live. God heard you. And Hezekiah goes, can I get a sign? <laughs> can I get a sign? Like, how about you live? That's a good sign. But like, can I get a sign? And he asked for a sign. And he says, Isaiah says, what would you like? Would you like the sundial to go forward 10 steps or backward 10 steps? And he's like, well, it always goes forward. I'd like for it to go backwards. And so God does that. God gives them this sign. Then you start to really see this pride starts to come up. Second Chronicles 32, 23 says, Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all nations. All of a sudden, Hezekiah finds himself amongst a new crowd. He finds himself with new attention. He finds himself in a world that he never imagined, that other kings, that other kingdoms are coming, and this is now the celebrity king. He's done some amazing stuff. He's got level of influence. He's never seen this before. Look what I've done. They're coming to look at me because of what I have done. 32, 25 says this, but Hezekiah's heart was proud, and he did not respond to the kindness shown him. Therefore, the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah repented of the pride in his heart as did the people of Jerusalem, and therefore the Lord's wrath did not come on them during the days of Hezekiah. You see this battle? Like this conflict. It's like, God, I, I repent, I repent. But man, that pride keeps on coming back. I repent. And, he, and it, it's just like you see this, this internal struggle of like God being faithful, but still this thing of pride. How many of us know that? We repent of this sin. We repent of the stronghold in our life. But it, yet it still keeps calling us back. And God is like cheering us on. Come on, you can do the right choice. You can choose wisely. The temptation is still there. The temptation of pride is still there. Then look, but clearly has temptation of pride. Look at what 27 says about him. Hezekiah had very great wealth and honor. He made treasuries of his silver and gold and for his precious stones and spices, shields of all kind of valuables. He also made buildings to store the harvest of grain, new wine and olive oil, he made stalls for various kind of cattle, pens for the flocks. He built villages and acquired a great number of flocks and herds, for God had given him 
very great riches. So here's Hezekiah, back on his balcony, looking out back of his life, his reign, his achievements. He has turned the people of Judah away from idol worship back to the one true God. He has defeated the greatest army on the face of the earth. He has beat death. He has seen a miraculous sign and miracle. Now he has treasure and money and influence, and the kingdoms of the world are looking to him. Then all of a sudden, another knock comes on his gate. And it's not the Assyrians. He's already dealt with them. It's the Babylonians, the next superpower that's rising up in the world. They come knocking on the gate, and it doesn't even make sense. Hezekiah freely, gladly opens the doors for them to come in. They come there, and they probably, I would imagine, they, they're speaking things of, oh, how did you defeat the Syrians? And tell us about this miraculous sign of the sun going backwards, and, and tell us of this. And, and he is just, his, blind, his pride blinds him. And he goes and shows them all of their wealth, all of the treasury of Jerusalem. Just shows it, brags, prideful, never wondering, why are they here? Why do they want this? And as soon as they leave, the prophet how many of us know that we need a prophet in our life to call us out sometimes, right? The prophet Isaiah went to King Hezekiah and asked him, what did those men want? Where are they from? Hezekiah replied, they came from a distant land of Babylon. What did they see in your palace? Isaiah asked. They saw everything. Hezekiah replied, I showed them everything I own, all my royal treasuries. Then, Hezekiah, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to the message from the Lord. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all the treasures stored up in, from your ancestors until now, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylonians' king. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, listen to this. Just like shows the heart again. This message you have given me is from the Lord is good. And the Bible tells us what he was thinking. For the king was thinking, at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. You see the slow progression? Do you see repentance there? I see a lack of repentance. I see a lack of care for the next generations. And it's all of a sudden just about me. And it's all of a sudden, well, at least it won't happen in my lifetime. King Hezekiah, faithful for years reigning, faithful and derailed by pride at the end. Yet God has called his people to be faithful till the end. The prophet Hosea says this in 13.6, When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. We do this when things are hard, when things are difficult. God, come and act, come and move. When things are good, we forget God. Yet, I don't want to overshadow everything because he did amazing, great things. He did incredible things, Hezekiah, for the nation of Israel. He did amazing stuff. But at the end, pride got him. So what is the point of all this? The point is, no matter how deeply Hezekiah wanted to save 
help change and be a good king to Israel, he wasn't enough. What all of these stories tell us, what all of these stories point to, is that Israel needs a better helper, a better king, a better savior. One that does not succumb to pride. One that, that had every reason to be prideful, but kicked pride in the face, as Philippians 2, 6 says, talking about Jesus, the great king coming, who being very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather made himself nothing, and taking on the, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human kindness, human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the good king. That is the righteous king. That is the one that does not give to pride. He was very nature God in heaven being worshipped by angels and yet he had every reason to have pride and yet he did not because he is our good saving king. Amen. The team wants to come back up here as I close here. I want you to see one other thing about Hezekiah. Hezekiah would lead the people back to him. And we see that that he led them in that direction. What he did was incredible. And we celebrate his faithfulness. And we see the blunder in proportion to all the greatness that he did. But it's not just about, I want you to see this, it's not just about what happened at the end of his life. It's what happened after his reign. Because you read on, and Hezekiah was followed and succeeded by Manasseh. We read about his terrible things in Second Chronicles 33. Then he was followed by Ammon. And you read about his reign in Second Chronicles 33. And Hezekiah, what we see is he slowed the judgment of God that was to come. That was actually the prophetic message that was part of the miracle that he saw of the sundial going back. It was, yes, a sign of his healing, but it was also a sign that God was slowing and delaying the judgment of God that was to come upon Israel. He pushed it back. And Hezekiah, in all of his faithfulness and all of his greatness of reigning as a king, he could only delay it and push it back. He could not cancel it because he was not the true king. There was one king that comes, his name is Jesus, and he did not delay it. He did not push it back from your life and let you one day have to worry about this judgment coming. He canceled it once and for all. He took care of it once and for all. And that is the amazing thing of the gospel. This is this Bible that we believe, the story that we believe, that Jesus comes and he simply says, I've come and I've given it all. I've taken the very wrath of God for your sin upon myself. And all you have to do is confess that you are a sinner in need of a savior, that you have pride, that you have stuff that stands in the way of you and God. You confess that and he will gladly and happily take it away. That's the easy part. That's the easy part. That's the amazing part. The second part is the hard part. The second part is finishing well. It's holding on to that faith, holding on to that trust in him throughout your lifetime here. Trusting and believing when the world comes with attacks, when your flesh wants to bring that that pride and those other sins back to you, when the world around you, and, and, and we are tempted even to put our hope in other things than Jesus Christ himself. 
I'd say even more so right now, we are tempted to put our hope in other things than Christ. I want to put my hope in new policies. I want to put my hope in a new job. I want to put my hope in new pro- uh, uh, provisions. I want to put my hope in the next president, in the next leader. I want to put my hope there. But listen to what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, his protege, who is raised up in ministry. Paul is finishing his journey, finishing his walk. 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 8 says this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the fight. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. So Paul's getting his award, but not only him. Come on, this is you guys, this is you. But also, all of us, all of who long for his appearing. They long for his appearing. Listen, we are tempted to set our hope on other things, but God is calling us to set our eyes on his appearing. Just as Israel, every one of their kings, pointed to the need for a greater king, we are the same. We need to set our eyes on our returning king, Savior Jesus, that he will come, that he will rule, that he will reign, that he will put things right back, and that there is a reward for us if we keep our eyes focused there. Yes, we, we, we rule and we reign and we do what God has called us to on this earth, but let us never, ever put our hope in something less than Jesus Christ. Would you guys stand with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for today, Lord God. I thank you for the power of the story of Hezekiah. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are working, that you are moving, that you are doing things, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. Even today, Lord, in our nation, Lord, where where we're seeing pockets of revival and pockets of great things happening, Lord, let us never become prideful in thinking that it's happening through us or through your church. Lord, it is your grace, it is your mercy, it is you alone that does it. Let us stop looking towards man, the next national leader, the next conference speaker, the next prophet, Lord, that we look to you and to you alone. And that is where we find our hope. That is where we find our peace. That is where we find our rest, Lord Jesus. And knowing that all has been paid for, all of our wrath, all of our sin, all of our separation from you. In Jesus' name, amen.